As we prepare to hear what God has shared and laid on uh, Neil's heart, just want to introduce him to you once again. Uh, I don't know that we hear as often some of us. Some of us, uh, we, are, we get Faith Today magazine and we're up to date on what uh, important issues the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada are representing Canadian uh, Christians in, in uh, the, uh, the halls of government and, and other areas. But uh, we have with us this morning Mr. Neil Siemens. He's an ambassador for the EFC in Alberta. And uh, though, though they live in Innisfail and go to church at Crossroads, they're away from home many Sundays. Many Sundays they're in different church families uh, sharing the important ministry of the Evangelical Fellowship. So let's just welcome Neil and his wife Juliana to our time this morning. Let's welcome them. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure and privilege to worship with you this morning, so I thank you for that as well. And of course, what I'm here for is to share about the ministry, the history and the ministry of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and also share some thoughts from God's Word. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada was formally launched some 59 years ago back in 1964. We are an umbrella organization that works with evangelical Christian organizations across Canada seeking to speak with a united voice to media and government. Now, since any organization needs guidelines or principles in terms of how they will function, the early leaders of the Evangelical Fellowship developed a statement of faith that would guide us and any organization that affiliates with us agrees with and upholds this common statement of faith. Affiliates include 44 denominations, 36 higher education institutions, 70-plus ministry organizations, and some 570 individual congregations as well. And all of our affiliates combined represent more than 2 million Canadians who hold to the Bible as the final authority for life. We have ministry centers, three ministry centers, in fact. The Center for Faith and Public Life, which is strategically located near Parliament Hill in Ottawa, where, we, where our experienced and respected staff identify and build and maintain strategic relationships with our members of Parliament, members of the Senate, and other government officials as well. Then we have uh, the newest center, which is the Center for Ministry Partnership and Innovation. This is our newest center located in Scarborough. It was established to encourage collaboration between individuals, churches, and denominations that work in similar areas of ministry. And our third center is a center for research on church and faith. The reality is that your local pastor simply doesn't have the time or the resources for in-depth research on issues, but we have individuals that are dedicated specifically to research, and this is what they do on a regular basis. One of the projects they're currently working on is family faith formation. And this is an, a project where they're seeking to get a better understanding 
of the responsibility of our, and the discipleship of our children, the church roles and the parents' roles. We just recently completed a, a project called Significant Church. This was an in-depth research with 13 other organizations on the small churches, evangelical churches in Canada from a perspective of their pastors. This is a free download on our website, and so it's there already. It was just completed just in, the, I believe, in February. Our mission statement is uniting evangelicals to bless Canada in the name of Jesus. And we have many current initiatives that we work on, and I want to just share with you a little bit of information on each of them. One of those in, in, uh, initiatives is prostitution. In June of last year, the House of Commons Justice Committee released a report on Canada's prostitution law. The law is actually called Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. It was passed into law back in November of 2014. Now, there were some positive recommendations, such as more resources for prevention and help for victims of exploitation. However, we were disappointed with the committee's assertion that prostitution laws cause serious harm to those engaged in prostitution. We are also concerned by the committee's suggestion that decriminalization could be a future development because we believe that prostitution preys on vulnerabilities, human trafficking increases with decriminalization, violence and stigma are inherent to prostitution. And we believe the law is constitutional and it is safer. The reality is that many of these young ladies caught up in prostitution are not there because of their choice. Often they have been trafficked and or they have been coerced into this. And so this is a, a, a issue for sure. And now this law actually was before the courts in October of last year, and uh, EFC intervened in that case, and uh, we are still waiting for the, the uh, ruling and just where this is going. On a positive note, there are organizations seeking to rescue these young ladies off the streets, and they are worthy of our participation and support. One such organization is called Next Step Ministries. They seek to rescue these young ladies off of the streets. They are then placed in a safe home where they can live up to one year at no cost, have the opportunity to get their lives back together. Many come to know the Lord through this ministry. And so this is an excellent ministry. These are excellent ministries for our participation and support as well. Another issue is Violence Against Pregnant Women Act. This is currently a bill, it's a private member's bill that was forwarded by Kathy Wagenthal, a member of parliament, and it is expected to come up for its first hour of debate this month. So if it's passed, it would make harming a pregnant woman a serious crime, and it could mean longer sentences. Another significant issue is pornography. Research suggests that 90% of our boys and 60% of our girls will be exposed to pornography before their 18th birthday. The average age of exposure is between 11 and 13 years of age, 
It's getting younger. I recently heard someone suggest that some kids as young as nine years of age are being exposed to pornography. There are more than 4 million porn sites on the Internet, and 25%, one in four searches on the Internet, are for porn. Aside from addiction, there are other serious health issues that we're concerned about, especially for younger kids' brain development. Now, we continue to work with our health minister federally to encourage them to do an in-depth, some in-depth research and study on the health risk of pornography. Unfortunately, we currently have no legislation that regulates online pornography. However, on April the 18th, just this past month, a private member's bill, Bill S-210, was passed in the Senate, and it will now go to the House of Commons. This bill, if passed, would make it a criminal offense to make explicitly sexually material available for commercial purposes to minors online. So these are things that we always get involved with. And then there's human trafficking. Globally, human trafficking generates roughly $150 billion annually. It is exceeded in revenue generated only by the illicit drug trade and illicit arms trafficking. 95% of trafficked victims are women and girls. 43% are between the ages of 18 and 34 years of age. Now, research suggests globally there are 24.9 million victims trapped in modern-day slavery. 16 million, 64% for labor. 4.8 million, 19% are sexually exploited. And 4.1 million, 17% for state-imposed forced labor. Now, in November of this past year, the federal government passed Bill C-5. Among other things, the bill allows for home arrest for human traffic-related offenses, the trafficking of persons for material benefit. This is a concern to us because that's allowing a lesser penalty for human trafficking, and it sends the message that this offense is of lesser concern. So we are very concerned on that one as well. Another issue is charitable status. The Prime Minister has instructed the Finance Minister to introduce amendments to the Income Tax Act to make anti-abortion organizations that provide us honest counseling to pregnant women about their rights and options ineligible for charitable status. These instructions single out organizations with particular views or beliefs about abortion for greater scrutiny and it adds a values test to these organizations. Now, the Canada Revenue Agency, their um, guidelines state that a charity is free to advocate for retaining, opposing, or changing any law, policy, or decision of government. So we're concerned this could target charities based on their underlying beliefs or priorities that differ from the government of the day, which could put all charities at risk. Another significant issue, very current for us, is medical assistance in dying. MAID is the acronym, euthanasia. It was legalized in Canada in June of 2016. The criteria for eligibility are that you must be 18 years of age 
or older and have decision-making capacity, be eligible for publicly funded health care services, make a voluntary request that this is not the result of external pressure, give informed consent to receive made, meaning that the person has consented to receive made after they have received all information to make this decision, have a serious incurable illness, disease, or disability, have enduring and intolerable physical or psychological suffering that cannot be alleviated under conditions the person considers acceptable. And as you can see on the overhead, the numbers, huge percentage increase from each year, from one to the next. Now we have statistics to the end of December of 2021, so we do not have 2022 statistics yet. But as you can see, to the end of December of 2021, there have been 31,664 persons with, that were died with MAID. Now, if you just extrapolate that, you look at the numbers of increase, the probability by the end of 2022 were probably over 40,000. And the majority of these deaths were persons aged 56 years and up. But the, the, the reason for this is incredibly sad. It says, I read that the most commonly cited intolerable physical or psychological suffering that's reported by individuals was the loss of ability to engage in meaningful activities. That's 86.3%. And then followed closely by the loss of ability to perform activities of daily living, 83.4%. So it's incredibly sad that we have folks that just feel life just is no longer worth living. And so they go for euthanasia. Now, we have a new resource, and we have various resources at our table, but one of our newest is a booklet, Life Together, which is looking at a lot of these issues from the perspective of handicapped persons who feel particularly vulnerable in, in, uh, when it comes to euthanasia. And so I would encourage you to pick by, up a lot of those. And then Canada was also going to make mental illness alone a qualification for made as of March of this, this year, there was a lot of pushback from a lot of organizations, and so they've postponed it for one year. And we as an organization are hoping that there will be continued more pushback, that they will actually drop that entirely. And then there's also pressure to include what they call mature minors. I don't know how you would determine that, but it's just sad where this whole direction is going. Now, the rallying cry for the proponents is death with dignity, and we agree. But we believe that with advances in medicine and, and science, death with dignity can be achieved through hospice, palliative care, and home care, rather than through euthanasia. And... and uh, and so I want to just share a little bit with you about hospice palliative care. First of all, defining hospice palliative care. Hospice care, palliative care, is a specialized form of health care that aims to relieve suffering and improve the quality of life for those living with life-limiting illnesses as well as for their families. 
Hospice palliative care addresses the specific physical, psychological, social, spiritual, and practical issues and their associated expectations, needs, hopes, and fears on an individual basis. The benefits we believe of hospice palliative care are pain management, symptom management, social, psychological, emotional, and spiritual support, and caregiver support. And this, I believe, is a wonderful opportunity for each one of us to become involved through volunteer visiting and help for the families in this circumstance. I would also like to clarify something. When we're talking about medical assistance in dying about euthanasia, we're talking about actively injecting drugs into a person's body to end the life. Sometimes when a person has an illness, the treatment is worse than the disease and they choose to forego treatment. That's not what we're talking about. Another issue is in hospice care, pain management, uh, comfort care is provided through pain management. And so at times the, med, the pain meds need to be increased and this can potentially hasten your death. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about the act, actual act of ending a person's life. Another significant sanctity of life issue is abortion. Prior to 1969, all abortions were illegal in Canada. However, in 1969, the federal government passed legislation where a, a woman would be able to have an abortion if her health or life were in danger. It had to be approved by a panel of three medical practitioners. It had to be performed in a hospital the procedure had to be approved, and then the legislation was opposed right from the start by the pro-choice movement, and it was flaunted by some of our health care providers. And so ultimately, it came before the Supreme Court of Canada, and in 1988, the law was struck down as being unconstitutional. Now, when the courts strike down a law, they give the government a year to come up with legislation to, to replace the struck-down legislation to regulate the procedure. Now, even at this point in time, it was already a very thorny issue, and it took more than that. It took probably two years. But in 1990, in a free vote in Parliament, legislation regulating the procedure was passed. However, before any legislation passed by Parliament actually becomes law, it must also be passed by the Senate. Sadly, on the, in January of 1991, the legislation was defeated in the Senate. As a result, it was never pursued by that government of the day or any government since. And so what that means is that as a result, Canada is one of, only, one of the only developed nations in the world with no regulations on the procedure. It is technically legal for a mom to have her child aborted right up until the moment before that child is born. I don't know that there are many physicians that would perform an abortion in the third trimester, but legally it could be done. And according to Stats Canada, we have between 100,000 and 108,000 abortions annually. Now on a positive note, in fact you just mentioned in your announcements this morning, but we have crisis pregnancy centers across Canada which seek to actively work in this area. 
These are wonderful charities that are worthy of our financial and volunteer support. And then there's conscience protection. This is specific conscience protection for healthcare workers. So it's needed so that no one is ever compelled to participate in procedures, whether it's made or abortion, against their deeply held beliefs. Manitoba has passed a law to protect conscience. However, the federal government and most provinces do not have robust protection. So this is an issue, again, that we continue to work with on all levels of government to encourage them to enact legislation for conscience protection. In Ontario, the medical association requires that while their members can, are exempt from participating in procedures that are against their deep-held beliefs, they are required to provide a referral. It's kind of like driving the getaway car for the bank robber. And then there's religious freedom for military chaplains, something that just came up recently. But again, an advisory panel has recommended that chaplains from certain faith groups be excluded. Now, there are many chaplains serving from Catholic, Evangelical, Orthodox, Jewish, and Muslim faith groups. And the reality is that the majority of serving chaplains are from faith groups that are deemed unacceptable. And then there's conversion therapy. This legislation was passed back in December of 2021. Now, while we agree that no one should ever be forced into therapy, we believe that this legislation is overly broad, and it it probably will impact freedom of religion and expressions. So we're also following up and and watching that again. So then how do we engage? Well, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada Canada seeks to engage on all of these issues through one of the ways, intervener status and court cases. We have intervened before the Supreme Court of Canada on 32 occasions and 34 more times in lower courts on various religious freedom and sanctity of life issues. Another way that we engage is through presenting submissions and briefs to governments. That's where our center in Ottawa is so vital for us on Parliament Hill. They seek to get to know the members of Parliament, the members of the Senate, and seek to influence toward righteous legislation. And then also appearing before parliamentary committees with input. When the government proposes new legislation, usually after second reading, it is sent to an all-party committee to be studied. And it is at these committee hearings that EFC has the opportunity to appear before the committee and to have seek input and influence in the legislation. So those are just a lot of the basic issues that are so prevalent in our society that we continually are working on. And, and uh, I would just want to just encourage us because on the marketplace, you know, we have a biblical perspective. And I think it's very important that we be absolutely confident that the Bible is true. And I want to share some thoughts on that with you. But we need to know where we stand. We will not, the Bible will not be likely be able to be used in the marketplace, in discussions. But it's important for you and me to be absolutely confident and so I want to look at, the, at that again, the Bible and sanctity of life and our special relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
There are four questions I would like to just briefly examine with you. What do we mean with the term sanctity of life? What does the Bible say about sanctity of life? Why should it matter what the Bible says? What then? How should we respond? So what do we mean with the term sanctity of life? The generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone is to set that person apart for the use intended by the designer. In faith and ethics, sanctity of life is a principle of implied protection of life which are said to be holy, sacred, or are otherwise of such value that they are not to be violated. So what does the Bible say? Well, I, I will be referencing various scriptures as we proceed, but as a backdrop, I would like to just read some verses from Psalm 113, 139, rather, verses 1 to 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. <clears throat> o Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am doing to stay to say even before you know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the, down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day and darkness and light are the same to you. <clears throat> You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. <clears throat> and when I wake up, you are still with me. It's absolutely astounding to me to think that our Heavenly Father saw my unformed body long before I was born, each one of us, and all the days that were assigned to us were written in his book before one of them came to be. So this passage shows clearly just how special our relationship with our Heavenly Father really is. And other examples, or another example, is the whole story of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says that, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So these verses state that humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. Adam and Eve, out of all of creation, were the only ones created in the image of God. And then 
in a couple of verses later, the Bible explains options for food. But also in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that Adam was created from the dust of the ground and that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. And then a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible tells us that all the animals were also created from the dust of the ground and then they were brought to Adam to see what he would call them. I mean, just all of these examples of the very special relationship we have And then, of course, if we continue reading in chapter 2, we come to the instructions concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapter 3, we read about how God visited Adam and Eve every evening in the cool of the day. Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before they ate the forbidden fruit, but the implication is that God desired to have fellowship with them, and he visited them every evening in the cool of the day. So this is, it's so obvious that our Heavenly Father desires to have a special relationship with us. But this then begs the question, why does God want to have a relationship with us? If you go to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that he is God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in man-made temples And human hands cannot serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. So God is totally self-sufficient, yet he desires to have a relationship with us. That seems to me the ultimate example of our special relationship with our Heavenly Father is the plan of salvation. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle wrote that he says that the, that the plan of salvation was devised in eternity past, long before creation. So God wasn't shocked when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. It's not like he suddenly had to come up with plan B. He knew it would happen, but he desired to have that relationship, and so he doesn't want it to be one-sided. His desire is that he would have a reciprocal relationship that we would have a relationship because we choose, desire to have a relationship with him as well. He could have created us as robots, but he wanted us to voluntarily choose to have a relationship with him. And so the plan of salvation was devised in eternity past, long before creation. So why does it matter what the Bible says? Well, first of all, in First Timothy or Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, we read that all Scripture is inspired by God <clears throat> and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches to do teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. So it's our instruction, our roadmap. It also brings conviction to correct error and to restore obedience and training so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God in everything we do. The Christian faith is reasonable. It is rational. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, we are called to reason together. Come now, let us reason together, the Lord says. And then in Romans 12, verse 2, we are called to renew our mind 
So this is the internal evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. So you may wonder, and may ask, is there external evidence for the historical accuracy for the inspiration of the Bible? Now as we consider this question, I would like to share with you briefly a little bit of my journey. I came to know the Lord shortly before my 13th birthday. Four years later, at age 17, I was baptized. Then after high school, I went off to Bible school. Had, I enrolled in a three-year diploma program. Of course, we studied the Bible, church history, music, and various things. Scripture memorization was a huge part of what we did as well. Then after Bible school, after I w- we were married, <coughs> I had a, retail, a career in the retail industry. That career took us to three provinces and about nine or ten different cities. So along the way, we had the opportunity to have wonderful godly pastors teaching us the Bible and training and teaching us. Yet in spite of all of this information that I had, I had these nagging questions. I never considered abandoning my faith, but I had these questions and I needed them answered. Like, what if the Bible isn't true? What if the Bible isn't historically accurate? What if Jesus isn't who he claims to be? And so I did a lot of reading. Various authors, three authors that really connected with me were C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, and Josh McDowell. C.S. Lewis grew up in a Christian home. At age 10, he lost his mom to cancer. He became very bitter against God for taking his mom And by the time he had graduated from Oxford University, he had become an avowed atheist. He subsequently taught at Magdalen College, an affiliate of Oxford. Providentially, he had some Christian colleagues who challenged him to re-examine his atheism, which he did. And ultimately, he found the evidence for the Christian faith overwhelming. He referred to himself as a reluctant believer because this was the last thing he had wanted to do. And if you're interested in reading his story, it's, it's a big book, but it's, it's mere Christianity details his spiritual journey. Another one for me was Lee Strobel, also an atheist, his wife an agnostic. He studied journalism and, and uh, law and became an award-winning legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Again, providentially, they had a Christian neighbor, neighbor a lady who lived next door. She became good friends with Lee's wife, Leslie, And so one day when Lee came home from work, his wife announced to him that she had become a Christian. And he thought, well, now that was not part of the deal. And his first impulse was to walk out on his marriage because he was convinced it was over. But he decided to bide his time. And and it turned out that not only was his marriage not over, it it got better. He was just amazed at the positive changes he saw in Leslie. And so Leslie and her new friend would attend church every Sunday. He didn't go, but he never interfered. But sometime down the road, his wife, one Sunday, as she was getting ready to go, she invited him. She said, why don't you join us? And he decided he would. He thought he would hear what the speaker had to say, critique, whatever. Well, as it turned out, he was so intrigued by what the pastor had to say, he wasn't ready to just jump on the wagon, bandwagon, but it set him on an extensive three-year journey, and you can read his story in his book, The Case for Christ. I know for me, after reading his book, which is easy reading, but it just solidified my faith in who Jesus is 
It was a huge positive inf or, um, experience for me, Lee Strobel's book. And he's an amazing apologist for the Christian faith even today. And then another person that was really significant for me was Lee, or, um, Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell grew up in a, in a, in a uh, dysfunctional home. After high school, he went off to college to study law. His objective was to become the governor of Michigan. But he said he had this persona of being this happy-go-lucky guy, but in reality, he was actually quite miserable, and he discovered he wasn't alone that there were others in that same boat. However, there was a group, eight students, a couple of profs. They seemed to be always be living above the circumstances in their lives. They were happy. They knew what they believed. They were willing to stand up for what they believed. He liked that. He respected that, and he liked to hang out with them. But then he discovered that they studied the Bible, and he thought, oh my, you poor souls, really. And so he would challenge them, get into conversation. He said there was one young lady that would engage him quite frequently. And one day she just kind of threw down the gauntlet. She said, Josh, if you don't believe the Bible is true, prove it. He decided he would. And in his mind, it would be a two-week little project. Well, he discovered very quickly it wasn't going to be quite that easy. And in fact, he left school for a period of time, traveled to Europe, to universities, to libraries, to museums, and so it was that one day when he was in the library doing some research, the librarian, the head librarian, engaged him in conversation. She wondered what he was up to, and he said, well, I know the Bible isn't true, and I'm here to prove it. And so she thought, hmm, I have this lawyer friend, Christian lawyer friend, I should introduce him, which she proceeded to do. And he was of the same mind. He thought, well, he assumed that Josh was there to investigate the evidence and come to a conclusion. But again, Josh, just matter of fact, well, I know the Bible isn't true. I'm here to prove it. So this friend asked him a couple of questions that he had not expected. First of all, he, asked, he said, I assume you studied history in school. And his friend said, well, or Josh said, well, yes, I did. And he said, well, how do you know it's true? He had never thought of that. And so being pragmatic, he decided... How do I know history is true? So he discovered that one of the key evidences that historians use is based on original manuscripts. Are there original manuscripts that support the historical event? He discovered in some cases historians accept history as authentic with as few as six original manuscripts. The most he ever discovered in his research was 90. He also discovered that the story about Alexander the Great, the first writings didn't appear until some 400 years after Alexander the Great had lived. And yet through archaeology, through contemporary events, historians are convinced that it's legitimate, that it is true. So then at this point, he decided he would apply the same test to the Bible as were applied to, or to history. Well, much to his surprise and chagrin, he discovered there are more than 34,000 original manuscripts for the Bible dating back thousands of years. There are more than 5,000 for the New Testament alone, and many of those manuscripts date back to within 100 years of the events that are talked about. So then at this point, he concluded 
that if he was going to be intellectually honest, if he was willing to accept any history, he had to accept the Bible as being historically accurate because when the same tests are applied, the Bible is so far ahead, there's no close second. But just because the Bible is historically accurate does not prove divine inspiration. So his research continued. And of course, if you read through the Old Testament, there are so many examples where prophets and leaders made predictions, made uh, predictions, I guess is the word, of, of events that were yet to come. And these prophecies were fulfilled right on schedule down the road. And so, of course, eventually he just realized that the evidence was too strong and he could not refute any of it. Now, for me, the, the issue that really sealed the deal is the story of Jesus. There are some 350 prophecies in the Old Testament that were made between 600 and 800 years before Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled every one of them right down to the tiniest detail. I mean, for this to happen by chance is so outrageous as to be impossible. In fact, somebody did some work on it and he concluded for even eight of these prophecies to have been fulfilled by chance would be like burying the state of Texas two feet deep in Tunis, put a little red dot on one of them and send a blind man to find it. Obviously impossible. And so it settled the equation for him. He knew the Bible was historically accurate. He knew the Bible was divinely inspired. And those just issues like that for me just absolutely settled it in my mind. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, I am truth, I am life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that satisfies me. I am prepared to enter into eternity based on what the Bible says. So then, the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible is clear. So how should we respond? Well, I think there are several ways we can respond in our society the way it is. We can accommodate. We could just throw up our hands, give in, join in. The other extreme is we could isolate, just completely withdraw and not engage in society at all. But if we take either of those positions, how can we be salt and light? How can we have any influence, any impact on our neighbors, on our friends, in terms of their relationship with the Lord? But Jesus set a better example. He engaged. He was severely criticized by the religious leaders of the day because he ate with publicans and sinners. He would, he would uh, associate with prostitutes. And the local religious leaders wondered, does it, if he claims to be a prophet, how does he not know what kind of people he is associating with? And Jesus responded. He said, well, the healthy don't need a physician, the sick. The righteous don't need a savior. The, the sinner does. And that's how he, who he associated with, and that's who he walked with. And so that's how he engaged. And I would encourage us to do that again. As I said earlier, you probably can't use the Bible in the marketplace to support your view on social issues, moral issues in our society. But we need to be firmly grounded and convinced that the Bible is true that it speaks to these issues, and that this is our position that we take. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're called to be salt, salt to preserve in flavor, light to illuminate. Also, the Apostle Peter, he encouraged us in, in his first epistle, chapter, 
or yes, chapter 3, verse 15, that we should be ready to give an answer whenever we are asked for the reason for the hope that we have and that we should do it with in a gentle and respectful manner. So thank you again for the opportunity to share with you this morning about the ministry and also some thoughts from God's word. And I just ask, invite you to stop by our table and help yourself to resources, whatever you would be. And would you please bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love, your unconditional love, your constant love, your unending love. You loved us long before we were returning any love toward you. You saw our unformed bodies long before we were born. And all the days assigned to us were written in your book before one of them came to be. Such knowledge is so amazing. It's just so far beyond us. But I thank you for your love. I pray that as we continue life's journey the next week and, on, and carry on, that we would be salt to preserve and flavor, light to illuminate, share the love of Jesus with wherever we go, with whomever we come in contact with. Again, we thank you that you are here with us, and I pray that you would just hear our prayers and answer all of our prayers according to your will, and we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.